The next thing I knew, I was down on one knee, but I kept myself from being sick. I knelt there in front of that dead man like a priest blessing a corpse brought to him by grieving relatives. I didn't know his family name or what he had done. I only knew that he was dead. All the dead men I had ever known came back to me in that instant. Bernard Hooks, Addison Sherry, Alfonso Jones, Marcel Montague, and a thousand Germans named Heinz, and children and women, too. Some were mutilated, some burned. I'd killed my share of them, and I'd done worse things than that in the heat of war. I'd seen open-eyed corpses like this man Richard, and corpses that had no heads at all. Death wasn't new to me, and I was to be damned if I'd let one more dead white man break me down. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. As always, a few items of business before we begin. You can reach us on social media. We are on Twitter at the Readers K. You can email us thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have. We are no longer on Facebook, but you can find the pod at your normal podcast outlets. So please listen along, tell a friend, rate and review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit counts. We're back this week talking about Walter Mosley's The Devil in a Blue Dress. It is our second book in our mystery section of this season on The Name of the Rose. This is my pick. And I'll go into a little bit about why I picked this book in just a minute. But as always, I'll start with a bit of a plot summary for you if you're following along. There will be a few spoilers um, since this is a mystery and we can't really talk about it without spoiling a few things. So Devil in a Blue Dress is the first book in a series featuring a detective named Easy Rollins. And Easy is a black World War II veteran. He lives in Los Angeles and he loses his job at the beginning of this book. And this is sort of the origin story of how he becomes a private detective, essentially. Um, so this book features Easy being asked to investigate the disappearance of a, of a white woman named Daphne Monet, who has uh, disappeared from somebody rich and powerful who wants to find her. Um, he's being paid to do that by a man named DeWitt Albright, who's sort of an unsavory character. But Easy needs the money to pay his mortgage, so he takes him up on it. Um, he goes around to the bars. She liked to hang out at the black bars, and so he, he goes around and tries to find Daphne there. He gets kind of pulled more and more into the world of the underworld, as you do in these stories. Along the way, he has to enlist the help of an old friend of his from Houston, his hometown, a man named Mouse, who is a little bit unhinged, uh, but use, a useful person to have around as well. Eventually, what Easy discovers is that Daphne is, in fact, not, by the standards of the day, a, a white person. She's, she's biracial. She's been passing as a white woman. Um, and that's kind of led to these issues. She's found herself somewhat at the mercy of a man named Turan, who has been running for the mayor of Los Angeles, but is also a pedophile. Uh, and so he's been trying to hush up what she knows about him by hushing her up. Things build to a head in a sort of climax of violence where Mouse is, turns in very handy. Daphne ends up running away. Easy ends up making a pretty good business of it all when, when the dust has settled and he's, he's settled into life as a private detective. He's gotten some money from this. He's gotten the police off his back because they've been bothering him for a while. And he's able to settle into life as a private detective by the end of the book. So that's that's sort of the basics. We'll talk about some other things as we go along. I wanted to say just a few things about why I chose this book for our, for our mystery uh, selection. It's uh, our second book of the season, actually, that none of us had, had actually read heading into this. I am familiar with it from the film version, which we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks, and um, love the film version. And so I was very interested in reading the book itself. I was also kind of thinking about 
wanting to pick a more contemporary detective novel, we had Friedrich giving us a, a classic Sherlock Holmes story. Carl's going to take us next time to a sort of classic noir in a lonely place. And so I wanted to pick something that was that was written, you know, in the last 30 to 40 years because it's representative, I think, of a lot of trends in the more recent world of detective fiction, which I think I might be the only one of the three of us who reads detective fiction with any regularity, I like to settle <laughs> down with a good detective novel now and again. I thought about maybe picking something by one of probably the two queens of contemporary crime writing, uh, the, the two wonderful British writers, uh, Ruth Rendell or P.D. James. I ended up going away from those um, and towards this book because both because I love the film version and also I thought it would open up some very interesting topics for us to explore around race and class and in, and sort of more contemporary modes of investigation. I also like the idea since it is it is a noir but it's maybe what we would call a neo-noir a more recently written noir that goes back to that world of 1940s Los Angeles, which is sort of the classic noir setting. So I thought it would make a nice pairing then within A Lonely Place, which we'll talk about again next time. That's a more of a classic noir. So th those are kind of some of my reasons I had for bringing us to this book. And I think we all really liked reading it. Um, I think it was a very pleasurable reading experience. Um, I'm interested in, in knowing what you all want to talk about with the book, what you found to be particularly outstanding, and we'll kind of go from there. So what's on your brains after having read this? Well, it's uh, it's an excellent series setup. I loved the multiple threads as we get farther into the mystery with Albright, who's a very hard-nosed, rough around the edges, shady kind of underworld boss person who can't be trusted that much. And where that will lead us is really fun to follow throughout the mystery. But then we also have Easy's backstory in Houston and this kind of life he had there, who he was growing up, and how some kind of aspects of his own past are still haunting him, and uh, Mouse being the character who comes out of that past to help him, haunt him, hurt him. Uh, he's easy sees him as, as useful but threatening at the same time. He's a really dynamic character. Then we have his war memories, and out of those war memories we get his voice, which gives us a little bit of that neo-noir take on why be hard-nosed, why do these things, what compels you, what brings you up to that point of nihilism, but then pushes you out of it, saves you from it in some way. And then the the racial and class dynamics of LA in the 40s and the police coming against Easy as well and having to always be a few steps ahead of the police as in all these good private eye LA noirs, right? But then it, there's a different element to it here because the danger of the police is heightened with respect to race in the 40s and how that plays out as well along the lines of easy also still having this like ideal of home ownership he's also compelled very much by like keeping his home and getting his mortgage that's kind of what starts it along and he keeps coming back to the fact that well he he's not going to give up his home and go back to houston he's here so he's going to do this new job or whatever it is because he's been kicked out of his other other job other line of work so all of those different threads really set up the kind of you can see that this is going to be a series and we're going to come back to the war moments and the house but we also get into the la underworld this time so i just thought it was a great kind of series opener it really made me want to check out more in it yeah i agree with uh with everything carl was saying i really appreciate the sort of attention to Easy's financial problems, Easy's desires to own a home, Easy's background in Houston in the war, all this stuff that's coming up and making him feel very real. And it, it brings me to two re things I'm interested in, in distinction to the Sherlock Holmes that we read last time, because they're kind of coming from two different angles, but to the, to the mystery. With Sherlock Holmes, as with other people like Hercule Poirot, you have this sort of highly intelligent, highly systematic detective character who outthinks the police and outwits everyone involved in the case. And this is more of the, obviously, the Raymond Chandler, Shaggy Dog world of a guy kind of just trying to get by. And he gets wrapped up in a mystery, and he needs to get out of it, but he also has a moral inclination to help the person who's in deeper than he is. Um, so I really liked it from that perspective. And the, the homeownership stuff, the financial stuff, and his background in Houston, that all plays into another 
aspect that's interesting to me compared to Sherlock Holmes. With the, the sign of four, we talked about the issues of race and empire and Jonathan Small and Tongo returning to the heart of the of, of empire and playing up the sort of the cannibal of the Andaman Islands. In this story, all of that anxiety about race and class, it becomes the text itself, right? It's not buried at all. It's what Easy is concerned about in his life. It's the thing that he has to deal with all the time. In a lot of ways, it takes like, because it's written later, it takes that 40s and 50s world of LA where you know, you'll occasionally see a black character come in representing some other world that the white detective has no connection to. In this story, we're in black LA holy and the white characters come in as outliers unusual or mysterious figures and from that perspective i think it's there's a lot to talk about yeah those are all really great thoughts from from both of you a lot to kind of unpack here so maybe we'll take it piece by piece i want to start with this idea that carl you brought us to one of the more interesting formal elements of this book is that easy experiences what he calls his voice that comes to him and he said he first encountered it when he was in the war in Europe um, he's in part of the D-Day invasion he's kind of liberating Europe and he, he is involved in this skirmish in the war and the voice tells him to do something to stay stay in this one place and he survives because of that and so he says ever since then he's trusted this voice that's come to him at key moments of his life for basically advice, right? It's almost like his conscience or something, but it's not really a conscience. It's just a voice that's telling him what to do in any given situation. I think that's really a fascinating dynamic for a detective to have because what it plays up, and Friedrich, you sort of rightly are noting this, is the difference between a a detective like Easy and a detective like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, of course, prides himself on his deduction, uh, which as Carl likes to rightly note, is maybe not deduction, properly speaking, but a sort of induction. But it's based around this sort of logical approach to things um, and really an outside-in approach, right? You look at things from the outside, you figure them out, and then you go from there. Easy, uh, as Friedrich is pointing out, is much more in the noir tradition of somebody who's sucked up into this bigger series of events. And so we follow him along, and the mystery is unfolding, but and he's doing things, certainly, but he's not necessarily like putting it all together in an aha moment. Instead, what he's experiencing are these series of intuitions that he then has to figure out what that means. He's proceeding largely on that gut feeling. And so I'm wondering what you all make of how that changes the, di- the dynamic of a detective story, to have it be based more on intuition than on a sort of logical process. You know, and that's not, of course, not to say that he's not an intelligent person because he is, but he's he finds himself more at the mercy of things that are happening around him, and he has to sort of figure out in any given situation not just who done it, but how do I survive this situation? How do I emerge out of it? How do I do the right thing in the situation? So, I'm interested to know what you all made of the voice as a construct in the book and what you think it's doing here, and and the larger sort of sense of intuition that's sort of the the engine of the the mystery here. Yeah, that's great. So, and that shores up a lot of things I was trying to put together about the portrait of epistemology that we get here and in the noir tradition. And to hearken back to my point about the Anglophiles and that American-Brit divide that sometimes is there, the portrait of epistemology we get here might be along similar lines where for Holmes, he's the arch-British empiricist or something where he can put together all of the perfect rational deductions and figure out what is the case, put together sort of all the synthetic a priori propositions in order to get us to the truth. But the noir tradition and easy, and especially easy's voice, reminds me of the American portrait of a pragmatist epistemology. The voice seems to me like an arch pragmatist, the most brutal, ruthless kind of cutting form of pragmatism for survival and self-preservation and some of that self-preservation involving as much kind of moral goodness as you can squeeze in, right? But not at the forefront of what you're doing, right? Uh, Easy's not like the model of perfection or in any way. Of course, Nora's Holmes, but I think we're kind of in that different tradition there in noirs and, and especially in this noir. And it's one where, as Soren was kind of saying, intuition outweighs like formal logical deduction or even a kind of Kantian practical reason. There's something even more 
pragmatic than practical here more on the ground in the moment shots are being fired what are you going to do and easy i think gives us really interesting and and good portrait of of how to make ends meet and how to stay a step ahead with those kind of epistemological concerns I like that distinction that you're drawing, and I hadn't thought about the word pragmatist in relation to this novel, but I think that's that's right on the money. There's not like a an attempt to describe a reality that has a lot of weight. We need to know everything that happened, put together a puzzle, explain it so that we understand it. It's as Carl was saying, I need to get through this day and survive it, and I need to help a couple of people along the way, and I need to approach things as they come, I think, right, is what you're saying. It's not about stepping back with total knowledge. Like Holmes talks about having the third element of a good detective is he has to have knowledge, right? And that French detective in The Sign of Four that he mentions doesn't have that yet. Easy here is, is not concerned with stepping back from the larger picture. But, of course, there is a larger picture being drawn by Mosley in writing this. And I think that's another difference between this and the British tradition that you're talking about. The larger picture here is one of a sort of decayed landscape and a decayed moral order and everyone involved in any sort of power is motivated by some of the most like depraved drives that can motivate a person and we can get to this later but it's definitely in that chinatown world right um we can talk more about that later and i appreciate the intuition in that because it's it's about this sort of person who is driven both by that voice that soren's mentioning that sense of intuition that seems as a, a, apart from himself and who also at times imagines as his like best weapon, this ability to just sort of be invisible, both from a physical perspective, like becoming the knight, he, he says a few times and from an intent or intentional or motivational perspective, he's sort of like, what makes me a good detective is that I can go sit in this bar mm-hmm. and ask questions about things that are ancillary to my interests and no one knows why i'm really here and that's connected to his race too right that he's talking about these white characters who see him a certain way and he's saying they don't see me as a full person and therefore i can use that to my advantage and manipulate information out of people and here it's nascent because it's his first novel about this character but you can tell it's becoming one of his his tools those are really great thoughts and that I'm really glad Carl that, uh, that you brought us to this question of pragmatism because I think that's key to the way that the novel works is that's basically easy's whole life is this pragmatic approach taking it sort of step by step how in this particular situation do I deal with what I find myself in without thinking you know this is not Kantian or something like what's my absolute duty but it's like mm. how do I handle the situation that's right in front of right. me and deal with it in the best way that I possibly can I want to think about one more than formal element of the book as it maybe relates to this idea of the intuition and the pragmatics. And that's simply that this is a a book that's told in the first person, which maybe doesn't seem remarkable from the perspective of novels, but it might be another, as I sort of think about it big picture, it might be another element of this sort of divide, however we want to frame that. We talked about it as British versus American. There's sort of the classic detective novel versus the noir story, but it does strike me that the classic detective novel is going to be told in the third person. There are exceptions, but it's going to be told in the third or the person. Witnessed, the, the witnessed, like, secondary, like, Watson narrating. R- right, yeah, or some sort of, like, yes, so so obviously, I guess, Sign of the Four is first person, but it's not from the main character's perspective, It's and it's being retold from a sort of more distant perspective, whereas this is told from the perspective of the detective as he's experiencing the things easy is narrating it although he is it's one of the odder characteristics of the book is that he is remembering back he makes several references to los angeles is no longer like this it used to be like this when i when this story is taking place so that's maybe a, a fun wrinkle to add in but that does seem characteristic to me of the noir genre i don't know how i actually haven't read any chandlers i don't know how many of his books are first person but as I think about noir films, certainly one of the things that they do, they break the rule that you learn the first day of film school, which is like, don't have a bunch of voiceover narration in your film, but they're, <laughs> that's why there's that rule. Right. Cause there's someone <laughs> so, but they're like that. lousy with it. Right. With all this, this, vo- but, but it strikes me as incredibly important to the genre and how it works itself because it is so much about this personal mystification that happens as you go through, because you're just like a chump who's suffering the blows that life is giving you. And so there's an existential element to it, certainly, which I think Easy is tapped into here. And then thinking about how that maybe 
ties into how this book in particular, with its element of sort of exploring the racism of 1940s America, is a good fit for that because Easy is a person who finds himself so much at the mercy of others, right? And mercy in air, heavy air quotes here, right? He's like at the whims of this, the, the police, the white police, or DeWitt Albright, who's this, you know, powerful underground guy. The social factors are at play so that basically everything in his life is subject to chance. His firing from work mm-hmm. is just like this this event that happens. He didn't do anything actually wrong. It was just like his white boss decided he didn't want to him to work anymore on a kind of on a whim, right? So there's these outside forces that are always at play. So it makes that very difficult then to bar, sort of build up that bigger picture or that sense of control or mastery over the bigger picture. And instead, what you're faced with is a, a bit by bit situation where you decide kind of have to survive every day as best you can. Friedrich, you mentioned the word invisible uh, earlier. And of course, that makes me think about Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's book. And there's something of a, a kinship here, right? In terms of that at least in that particular element of like there are all these forces outside of your control and they all want to push you around how are you going to survive both physically but then also existentially in the midst of all these forces that are in control of your life in some important ways and this speaks from a different angle to what you're saying soren what makes this unique from even like a philip marlowe detective story from raymond chandler is that in a marlowe story he's caught up in it he's kind of tossed about by other people who have more power but he's also quite a bit of a loner he has connections around the town but like he's he's on his own like a stray cat type person and easy has some some of that about him but i think what makes him successful quote unquote at finding the answers to what's going on in this book and surviving them is that he has like this robust social network and that's to me is, is a little bit more unique that he has a lot of friends and a lot of people who are friends but not quite friends, uh, like Joppy uh, or Junior. He has Odell, who's who's a very loyal friend. He has Mouse, who is the person who comes and saves him. And they all have these histories of migration from Houston to L.A. When he's moving around uh, L.A. trying to find answers to questions, he's also depending on those networks too, right? He's like, well, Frank, I know, is a sort of a post-prohibition bootlegger so i'm going to find out where he's going with this but i know that if i ask about him directly then he's going to find out and come kill me and he's like manipulating a social network of friends more so i think than more so than whatever that doesn't matter Uh, i think it's interesting though that that he's well it's a mystery that's involved in his community he's a person in a community exactly and his knowledge of that community and the different relationships sexual or otherwise that people all have with one another is what allows him to move through that without dying. I mean, I think you're both touching on a pretty interesting point, which is like, there's a difference in like the history of American pragmatism between like what Soren was saying earlier, like trying to find the totality or something's very difficult. Like someone like Richard Rorty would say, you know, there's no final vocabulary. There's no final epistemological viewpoint where you'll see everything and get everything. And, and this noir really gives us that. Uh, but then there's someone like Cornel West who comes kind of out of like the black pragmatist tradition who says something along the lines more of like what um, Friedrich is getting at, right? That there is a more communal tension or this invisibility is also a hypervisibility at certain times, right? And that gives you a kind of like bodily knowing how that's kind of like a different pragmatism at times than the, certainly the pragmatism of Marlowe. And we get that in a lot of Easy's interactions. We see right away that like, oh, this is the kind of white person who sees past all black people and just sees them as he must, if he's entering this building, be like a servant or something or somebody bringing like a, a box of goods or something. Or like with his boss, like, oh, he's like, I think he's Italian or something, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he's an outsider white at this time, mm-hmm. right? Who is not officially white um, amongst his peers. And so he has to do this kind of dance if he wants his job back that he decides he isn't willing to do. He kind of knows he his intuition race intersects with his intuition such that he can know all those other kinds of things, right? And as Friedrich was saying, that gives him a, a different kind of social capital and a different kind of pragmatism that makes for, like, uh, as we're all saying, a really interesting read. To press on the, the racial question a little bit more, one of the things I really appreciated about this book is how canny it is in its handling of where race and class come together. 
um, because it, they aren't just racial questions. They're, it's, it's always a question of race plus class for easy. And we see that, of course, in his own personal obsession with keeping his house, which, I mean, it's totally understandable, right? It's like his one thing that is his that he can own. And But I, I am also thinking the comment you made a minute ago, Carl, brought to my mind this scene that he has with the man who is ultimately looking for Daphne. It's his... his uh, Daphne is his mistress. He wants to marry her because he, he thinks she's white. But when Easy meets with him, he makes this comment to the reader that this was a guy who had so much money that he didn't like, he didn't have this animosity towards black people. He just didn't acknowledge their existence, basically. It was like, he's like completely, the, the, the race almost disappears in the sense that the class difference is so big that it's just like, and they're able to have a, some somewhat of a more open conversation than, than easy can have with someone like DeWitt Albright, who's a kind of like white hoodlum, right? But there's, there's this fascinating sense that, that, that Mosley's pushing us towards of class is somehow deeply intertwined here. And it's not like this guy's any less racist than the other white people in the book. It's just the racism takes on a different form because there's such a class difference. Whereas with someone like DeWitt, you see him, there's, there's a very striking scene. Um, they're meeting up to talk and uh, it's at like a, at like a pier, you know, down by the ocean. And these like white teenagers are, are kind of threatening easy. And uh, DeWitt comes along. He's a white guy. You know, he comes along and he's going to like shoot them. He like humiliates them basically and makes them run away. And there's that, you know, it's like, oh, it's like a white guy protecting a black guy. But in reality, what's going on is DeWitt's just protecting his economic asset that he has here in Easy. He needs Easy at this moment. And so there are all these fascinating ways in which race and class are touching on each other uh, throughout the book. And I think it's a really well done from from Mosley's perspective to see how these these two different factors really are intertwined with each other. That moment that you're talking about, Sarn, with Todd Carter, the super rich lover of Daphne, who's sort of behind the search, is interesting. And uh, Two pages after that, Easy's narrating, and he says, you know, I thought there might be some justice for a black man if he had the money to grease it. Money isn't a sure bet, but it's the closest to God that I've ever seen in this world. Getting right to the sort of stuff that we're talking about, that people of different races relate to their finances differently and it does different things for them but then to go back to Todd Carter in that passage that you pointed us to easy says it's the worst kind of kind of racism right. because he doesn't even recognize difference because it matters so little because these people who are not wealthy and especially these black people who are not wealthy matter so little to him and then and it really mostly has these striking images every once in a while in his pretty much straightforward and very readable and enjoyable prose and one of those images is at the end of this passage he says um I watched Carter move his lips about lost love until finally I began to see him as some strange being, like a baby who grows to man size and terrorizes his poor parents with his strength and his stupidity. Then that's like the page, a paragraph break, and we move on. And I love that because it's, it seems like the higher up in this world we go, we get away from people we, def- we define by like a sort of normative sexuality or behavior motivated by like domestic desires like easy wants to get his house frank and daphne want to protect one another as a family and then as we get up to the guy who runs for mayor to todd carter here we see these people who are sort of perverted by their wealth and power into big children or people who at least and we go going way back to dostoevsky who in the moral world where how you treat children is sort of an ultimate way of judging you, they are, they're pretty evil. Yeah, that, I think that's really fascinating, Friedrich, because you see Easy as a sort of enforcer of domestic harmony. At the end of the book, it's a funny throwaway mm-hmm. line, right? There's a, there's a plumber he knows, he's referenced him earlier in the book, he's got nine kids, and he's like always wanted to run away from his wife. And so at the end of the book, <laughs> Easy. One of the jobs Easy has is he hunts this guy down because he finally does it. He runs away. And, and earlier in the book, you know, Mouse is separated from his wife, Etta, and um, Easy makes a comment how he had basically fooled around with Etta when when Mouse had got first gotten engaged to her. And he said, well, I never worried about that because Mouse didn't care what I did with his women. But if I touched his money, that would have been an issue, right? And so that's maybe one of the things ultimately that makes, that separates Mouse from Easy is this sense that Mouse ultimately doesn't care about the domestic elements. He just cares about his money, and that's what's sort of getting him through life. And Easy 
though he cares about money, there's something holding him back from that sort of moral judgment that Mouse would make, which is like, I don't care what you do with my family, with my woman, just don't touch my money. And so I think that's a really fascinating thing you've brought us to here is that like there's a, there's some sort of tie between the corruption of money and the breaking up of domest- the domestic unit or something like that. How does uh, the figure of Daphne add into that equation or complicate it maybe? I don't know how I feel on those thoughts you both just made, but I'll... Daphne is in some ways the the MacGuffin of the book or something, <laughs> or the, the, the center of all the intrigue, but her past her sexuality she thinks of her own sexuality as outside the norm in some way but also as like attached to her sense of freedom which i think is what is alluring to easy and why their their time together is like important to him or really alluring to him almost so alluring as to be worth death or giving up everything else right and it's part of what makes her the titular devil in the blue dress what do you all think about how she might complicate that or how does she fit into that um, picture in some way i mean i don't have an answer but i'm hoping this will get us somewhere just by talking it out this is where chinatown comes in yeah like faye dunaway in chinatown she's a victim of incest right her father was raping her when she was 15 or something like that and that's why she ran away why frank is protecting her. Frank killed their father. And now they're kind of like supporting one another in LA. She's passing as white and sleeping with Todd Carter, who is financially supporting her. And so I don't know, like just as a jumping off point, we have to, we have to address that she's coming from a place where the domestic family, whatever unit has been shattered by the patriarch. Here's another thought on that just to keep us going what I was thinking of when I was reading the book that in Chinatown that happens and the end of Chinatown is we're in fully in the world of horror because John Houston's character who is that father gets away with repeating that cycle, right? Like he seizes his own granddaughter, I guess at the end and daughter, both daughter and granddaughter and Faye Dunaway dies and Jack Nicholson's just told to forget it, get out of here. It's nothing you can do about it. This person who has all this power and who's changing the way LA functions as a city is also going to get this girl and repeat the cycle. In this book, Daphne sort of escapes from that and the father figure is killed, right? The, uh, the original father's killed and then the father figure uh, who is going to run for mayor and who is a pedophile is killed as well. And so that hugely evil person is no longer there. But we're left with, I guess, other things that are the antagonist in this book, right? Which is more about easy and his place in this. I don't know. Getting anywhere with this? Yeah, no, that makes some sense. That's good. Can, can I have a point of clarification? I was under the impression, so she tells this story essentially twice about being molested. And the first time it's her father. But I was under the impression that the second time what actually is the case is that it's her stepfather. Mm, that who is, I took it to be Frank's father. Oh, right, because she's... Because his, because Frank is is you know not biracial he's just he's just black so they're they're half brother and sister I am I misunderstanding that that I read that wrong that was what I took to be the case the second time around but I could be wrong anyway you're the pontiff of plot yes yeah, so, so that that's yeah, what I took away from that's what I took away from the so. second telling of it that we get anyway that's probably not not a critical point to to, to belabor here but I, you know it is an interesting point that there is. You know, the closest tie we have in the book is this familial tie between a half-brother and sister. He's Frank Mm -hmm. for all of his excesses as a bootlegger, and he's a very violent man in some ways. Seems to have a real fraternal affection for Daphne and a protectiveness of her, and she for him, that people, of course, misread as as a lover's relationship because they don't realize that they're half-brother and sister. So, so yeah, there's there's all these interesting complications, for sure, that are arising here in these different sets of family relationships i think that's really kind of fascinating i do wonder if there's something of the element here like also uh, thinking about exploitation right it's not a mistake or an incidental that the little boy that the the mayor mayoral candidate keeps around is hispanic right which we're there's a point made of telling us that and so there's this there's some element of this like 
the exploitation of minorities extends to the sort of sexual plane here as well in this world. They're easier to procure for whatever needs you might have or something like that. Yeah, those, those are all fa- interesting thoughts for sure. Can we turn a little bit and talk about Mouse because he's such a fascinating and very maybe the character who takes this book from being really good to being great is Mouse because he he only shows up what two thirds of the way through the book. He's been talked about before as sort of this figure like, oh, remember Mouse? What a wild guy he was. And then he's suddenly here in the book and he makes things happen. Unlike Easy, who sort of carried along, Mouse makes things happen. And then he's there and he helps solve Easy's problems, but does it in some unsavory ways. He kills a few people and then he's gone again by the end of the book. But maybe there's the shadow of him returning in future installments, right? Of course, as you do in these books that become series. But I wonder what you think about Mouse's place, not just at the plot level, but as a sort of foil for Easy in the story and how he operates maybe differently than easy what sets them apart because on one level you know obviously they're old childhood friends they've known each other for a very long time they go back and they used to be associates like business associates in the sense of you know basically petty criminals together but easy has apparently like left that life behind and is trying to turn over a new leaf and all these things and go legitimate if you want to call it that but mouse hasn't and i'm wondering to what extent mouse represents a different way of surviving that Easy can recognize and acknowledge as, you know, he can understand why that happens, but then also rejects. And so where is his place in this, the sort of moral economy of this book? Well, he definitely symbolizes that great psychological, you can't escape the past, you know, your own past and that person you were growing up and the people who knew you then, that is an inescapable part of yourself. But he also is that kind of clear analog to easy but that easy would not like himself to be mistaken as which is a person willing to engage in like reckless violence for its own sake maybe or just for the sake of personal gain and there's a very small difference between that and the kind of violence that easy's willing to engage in or divert or once he's inside of a situation used to get out of it in order to secure his house and keep his, like, I think to me his house really represents a certain kind of freedom, but I think the freedom is the violence for Mouse, and it's not for Easy, and that slight but very important difference makes them good kind of antagonistic friends. In a way, Mouse reminds me of another great character of American fiction, in quotes, Um, Omar Little in The Wire. Like he's just a force and he shows up and he... Oh, I would not. I would not agree with this. I think Mouse... Why not? Wait, well, because I think he's like a force of violence who shows up. Where he's just like, (laughs) (laughs) am I funny? How am I funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) More of like, you see him as like the, like a loose cannon. Yeah, yeah. Like Easy's closer to Omar to me. Well, I mean, Omar is motivated by... Well, we don't have to get into Omar. That's, I guess I guess all I meant was that he, when he shows up, he's a force that like is unstoppable by whoever is there. And it's often because he's, he's there to collect some money or to like write something, mm-hmm. even if their motivations are different. I think what an interesting parallel for me in the book is DeWitt and, and Mouse, I think, are maybe both described at some point as having a wide white smile i don't remember if that's mouse who i know dewitt is i think mouse might be when he comes to stop frank from killing from killing easy and it's because as carl's saying he enjoys like dewitt he enjoys that violence that's part of it, the freedom he has and the, the way he values independence is that he's able to like kill who he wants but i think part of what makes them different is that dewitt is like a hired gun motivated in part by his own sadism and his own enjoyment of what he does whereas mouse He's sadistic as well, but he is primarily motivated by like a loyalty to this person. And that's like the one thing he has to hold on to as a character who's likable and redeemable is that he's highly loyal to Easy, and Easy and he are bonded because of some past. Yeah, that I think that's good, Friedrich. That there are even though he's maybe only tenuously connected to these bonds. Mouse is still connected to some bonds of community. Now, Mouse, like other characters in this book, also kills his stepfather, although for him it's about money, right, again, yeah. um, which is another interesting sort of contrast to the other things going on, unlike Frank, who kills possibly his father or his stepfather, you know, 
for molesting his sister. Mouse is motivated only by this by Bunny, but you're right that that sort of stops or is mitigated somehow when it comes to Easy. That Easy invokes something within Mouse, a, a sense of loyalty, a sense of shared brotherhood um, that, that makes him pause because, you know, there's a point where he maybe sort of half threatens Easy, but he's held back uh, in part by those, those bonds of friendship. So even though Mouse is a character who... I think thinks of himself very much as a, as a loner, as sort of sort of an outsider. He still is bonded to his community in some form or other, and even his his wife, who he's separated from, like that's how easy gets in contact with him is talking to her, and she she sort of like passes those things along because even though they're not together anymore, they're still part of the same community, and he he's sort of brought in by those ties that he can't fully escape. So even though yeah, he is a loose, he absolutely is a loose cannon. He's a force, but even he has some sort of limits. Where it seems like you're right. I think Dewitt really has nothing at all that connects him to anything. He just wants money. He's going to do whatever he wants to get it, and so he you know he's able to rise higher than mouses. And you know, of course, again, that's partly racial, but but also. In the end, there's nobody to kind of stick by his side, unlike Mouse does with Easy. I mean, you use the word, it's sort of a brotherhood. I think that's that's right on. That If at the heart of this is a sister and brother, Frank and Daphne, who are doing anything to stand by one another's side, here we have two brothers who are doing anything to stand by one another's side. They're not actual brothers, right? But it's that sort of sibling bond that, that remains. The parental bonds in this book are broken all over the place. Like you said, that sort of comic character who has a bunch of kids and is doing anything to flee, he's trying to break those bonds. And, you know, the, de- the detective story is often one of, that. going back to what we started this conversation with, is one about reinforcing, like, an existing structure, right? Reinforcing the domestic uh, household, keeping families together, exposing divorces and wrongdoing and adultery in the service of just, like, normative family structure. <laughs> and it's interesting that these sibling but not really sibling dynamics are what holds the people in the novel closest it, it didn't strike me until just now until you said that friedrich but now i'm realizing we never hear anything about easy's family do we that's true like not his, really. his parents so. or anything like that there's maybe like a very quick passing reference but he he seems to be very much a figure out on his own but then still, as you, as you rightly pointed out, kind of tied by these sort of fraternal connections, certainly to Odell, who's like his one actual friend who's yeah. not just a business associate, right? It's like a friend friend, right? But also to Mouse and to Joppy and to people like that. I think we have the, we all have the 30th anniversary version of this, right? That, that very short introduction that Mosley writes to this, since we haven't read later Easy Rollins Mysteries, he clarifies his biography a little bit and says that he was born in, poor in 1920 Louisiana and orphaned by the time he was eight. And then he jumps a boxcar to Houston, which is the backstory we know about Houston and where he meets Mouse and all these people who have migrated to L.A. And so, yeah, we don't have that in this story, but it's interesting that part of that is because as Mosley's writing these later novels, it's he he himself is someone who's fled from the domestic or been expelled from the normative domestic and now he has to sort of piece his own family together just a step back from the specifics of the families in this too to think whenever we're talking in a british novel in an american novel whatever about the domestic we're talking about like the national domestic as well right that it's about the nation and what binds people in it together and what severs them from one another Whatever, Carl, you can you can just raise your eyebrows at me. There, there's something to that, Frederick, because for Easy, one of his formative experiences is fighting in World War II, which is, for Americans especially, largely about preserving some sort of domestic force. Obviously, he's fighting in Europe, which is not as closely connected as, as the war in, in the Pacific to that, to defending the homeland. But there's an element of that, and it's there's, there's no mistake, right, that World War II is one of these turning points in terms of sort of african-american civil life because they're fighting they're finally they're fighting alongside of white soldiers for the first time and that doesn't solve everything by any stretch of the imagination of course but there's like a it's all of a sudden a sort of complicating factor in this life it seems to in a lot of black soldiers of world war ii awaken some sense of the injustice at home that they're experiencing and so there, there's it's a moment of disruption in even as it's a moment of sort of protection of the homeland and sort of a reinforcement of those things. It's also a moment of disruption. And so you have, I think, Mosley's noting throughout the book, 
these sort of pressure points of how society is either going to hold together or come apart, even though this is, of course, pre the, the, the sort of formal civil rights movement of the 60s, right? This is a moment yeah. before that. You can see those sort of tremors happening. He's also sort of noting, you know, the, even though it's focused on the black experience in Los Angeles, there's these moments of recognition of other minorities, right? There's his relationship with the, um, the Mexican hotel owner. And he, he kind yeah. of hints at it. He's like, this is the time when Mexicans and blacks basically thought they were the same and just sort of like lived together. And then they weren't f- sort of further sorted out. So there's a, these different moments of potential unity, but also potential disruption going on at the domestic national domestic level as you're sort of pointing out i think that's that's a good thing to note just i think we should note too about what you're saying soren that easy himself sees that war experience as a troubling blip in the orders that he sees in the united states based on class and race like he's like this is a time when i was killing a lot of white germans and it was sanctioned by my government and encouraged by my government and now he's home and he's in the thrall of that system of racism once more and he's like, well, what disrupt- disrupted that? It was this need to act as a household, as a domestic body. They allowed me to go out and cross, you know, transgress, I guess, racial lines in- to do that. And now that that's over, we're back in this. And it sort of throws off the way he sees everything for the rest of the book. I mean, yeah, just to clarify, too, I mean, I wasn't sure if Soren was saying this or not, but I mean, uh, like African-American soldiers have been in, I think, like every U.S. war, right? I think so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And... Um, there's a good book, Captain Blackman, where Johnny Williams is talking about how the dream of that producing some kind of integration or mm-hmm. progress on race relations in the U.S. is remains a dream or perhaps a nightmare after every one of those wars. And I think that that dynamic is playing out in the book. But you're right that there's a different racial dynamic to the United States at this time, where there are Mexican, Italian, Jewish people that easiest meeting and and there's a different dynamic with all of them right and he can read the texture of all those dynamics and that plays into what he's doing and he can gain like we were saying before because in many ways in in american history the knowledge that comes with being black is one of of knowing all these these places how one is made to or has to react to all kinds of different racial hierarchies that are going on throughout the town. And LA is this kind of place where there's all of that. So it's a great place for setting a book like this. I was trying before to get to um, the character arc of Easy seems to change or go through some intense moment when he's with Daphne Mm. and contemplating like, it's a classic kind of noir moment, like the femme fatale will the investigator kind of give up everything mm. and go go with her or be seduced in the ways that he has been investigating the failed lives of other people who've been seduced is that a kind of buildup of knowledge or is he realizing no what these other people are chasing is as worth it as they say it is and maybe i ought to chase it too that becomes a symbol of the devil in a blue dress which i think is a really interesting title and symbol for the book doesn't strike me as the kind of devil of an intensely pious person saying one ought not to have anything to do with this kind of devil right there's no good allure to it it's the kind of like blues song devil there's some good allure to it there's some wisdom or knowledge to be gained by dancing with the devil for a bit i wonder if y'all had anything to make of that or if that was interesting to you in reading this i think that part of what gives that dynamic some charge is maybe two things one is that i think that there is that that sort of choice like you're right it's that very noir choice of do i get fully absorbed into this woman who i find so fascinating or do i just like do my job basically right so there is that moment and ultimately it kind of goes back it, in a weird way. It almost seems like for easy domesticity is about freedom because it's his domestic unit is just himself and his house. Right. And so to, to embrace, like he basically does, he thinks about throwing it all away in order to like sort of be with her, 
But for him, that means giving up that freedom, that independence. And I think that's ultimately more important to him than whatever highs he might experience while he's with her. At the same time, also, it's funny because, you know, like all good femme fatales, ultimately she takes the choice out of his hands because she doesn't want anything to do with him anymore after everything transpires. And so, again, it's that moment of like, this is not really in your control anymore, you schmuck, right? Like, she's gone. Um, you can't control her. And so there's that there's that wonderful charge to their their night that they spend together and then which dissipates that's partly based in that that the control being taken away yeah the control being taken away and and knowing that even if you make this deal with the devil it's not going to last right eventually you're gonna have to pay for it and in the midst of their late night together she's asking for easy's help and asking him to stay and he says no i want to go out i need to think and i'm being suffocated by this and i need to get some food in me and she says like if you go it's gone like the thing we won't be able to come back to this and he says to us as readers i imagine that she had said that to lots of men and lots of men would have stayed rather than lose her i think that's at the heart of a lot of what happens in this book there's a attempt to hold on to something and you know it's gonna go and that's part of why easy is easy he lets things go Mm. Ooh, I love that. That's good. good. There's a great line to that too. That's like, I wanted her even if knowing her meant that I couldn't have her. Oh yeah. And I think that's kind of exactly what Friedrich was just saying. The the knowing of requires the relinquishing of something, Mm -hmm. which to me strikes as a really pragmatist thing too. We can't boil things down to axioms that later on we'll come back to and we'll be exactly the same. Those will fade away and we'll have to kind of keep searching in that moment new like things that we have to follow or do will emerge Mm. it's always moving well knowing this podcast means relinquishing it so i think on that note we're gonna (laughs) stop for this time around Um, thanks thanks to both of you this is a great conversation i think about a book that we all really ended up enjoying quite a bit um and encourage listeners to go out and and find this it's a very quick read we didn't even say that but it's like Barely over 200 pages and very easy to read and wonderful. We will return next time. We're going to be talking about Carl's pick for this round, Dorothy B. Hughes' In a Lonely Place. I'm excited to tackle that sort of original classic of L.A. noir. So we'll have a different perspective on that from that book. But until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. And by Delta Airlines, because geography is important for kids everywhere. Delta Airlines, you'll love the way we fly. All these people want to know. Cardman San Diego bombed. And one of these gumshoes could find her. He likes to play basketball and soccer, and he's learning to speak Spanish and Persian. Meet Justin Williams. She enjoys tennis, plays the flute, and would like to travel through Europe. Meet Kate Standish. He's been skiing in Austria and likes to play football, basketball, and baseball. Meet Christian Leckerling. And here's Acme senior agent in charge of training new recruits, Greg Lee. Hey, Greg, nice to see you. Woo!